Well, we're perfectionists and often I think architects will compromise their own time and the how much they value their own time in order to achieve that perfection. And they will throw themselves into these projects and go above and beyond because we're all passionate about what mm. we're doing. Welcome back to the business of architecture and design. This week, we have the second episode with Chi Mellum and host Isabel Tolland. Chi is a director at Sands Associates and has been with the practice for 17 years. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Back to you, Chi and Isabel. So what do you find to be your greatest challenge then as a practice director? Probably myself. <laughs> <laughs> Letting go is hard. I really enjoy the hands-on approach and the active engagement in projects. And all directors are very actively engaged in all stages of the project. And we, th we think that's a, a great way to offer value to our clients, but also offer an informal mentoring for our staff as well, because we are there mm. through all stages. It's just knowing that fine balance between how much to put in and where your strategic value is yes. and then knowing when to step back so that staff can grow through learning and increasing their responsibilities. How do you manage your own split between the design-related work and then also your you know, business-related work? So 70% of our time is in project work and the other 30 is on the, the practice management and the business management side of things. So we've got some very regular systems in place. Once a week we have team meetings once a month, we have director's meetings. Mm -hmm. We have office meetings once a month, design reviews once a month. And then there's regular touch points through the month with various teams and projects, depending on what's going on. We've got a wall where all the work's pinned up and yep. then the directors review which projects are up and which ones may need to be called up for a design review. Mm -hmm. And then um, a series of questions might be written and that gives the project director and the team an opportunity to respond to some of those questions and then we get together as a team with the directors and the project team and then a presentation's had and we we do a design review so all of the directors are involved yes yeah and do each of the directors have a different role in a way or something that they particularly focus on in terms of the practice we all do design work we all have our own projects what's probably interesting about the way that we work is there's always two directors on every project that does a couple of things it allows us to very quickly have design discussions and resolve design issues. Yep. It allows for a degree of consistency to come out of the practice. It's a great design review tool. Mm -hmm. And also, as things happen between different projects, it means one director can step in while the other might have to be elsewhere. In terms of the way the business is run, the five directors each have a portfolio which they look after. So at the moment, Alex looking after communications, mm -hmm. Maladin's looking after design, Ben's looking after technology, Jonathan's looking after finance, and I'm looking after the people portfolio. And so, so does that shift, though? It does. It's okay. rotational. Oh, okay. So how long do you each spend on those? Every couple of years we might change. Oh, how do you define that? Like what do you mean by design when you say design? 
like a focus of design. Maladin, since coming into the strategic role, I think it was last year when when things got mixed up, he introduced a more formal process for the design reviews. It's design communications, the way that we do design presentations and CPDs Mm -hmm. for the office so that there's a design alignment. That's kind of what that involves. Okay. And then communications, do you mean as in, is that sort of general communications about the practice? Yeah, it's both inward and outward focused as well. So internally, it, it might be a lot of our templates and, and how things are formulated. And then an outward focus would be on marketing, branding, strategy and yep. things like that. So it sounds like across the five of you as directors that actually it's fairly even, like it, it generationally, is. it's quite diverse as it is. the five of you. And yet you seem to have quite equal roles. Would we do. We do. I think that's really important for mm. us as the practice continues to evolve. And I think to Alex's credit, he's always established it that way. And I, yep. I just don't think it's been very clearly communicated outwardly. Mm. But internally, the 16 years that I've been there, it's it's always been a very even and balanced management strategy by all directors. Mm. And in terms of the history of the company then, as you said, you know, when you started there, it was similarly around 50 mm-hmm. and similarly had around four or five directors. Yeah. So it's maintained consistency, as you said, throughout that time. Is that the ambition of the practice, that it does sit evenly? There's no sort of sense of need to be somewhere else or like progress anywhere else. You're quite kind of happy and comfortable in that place. I think that the practice has... We, I think we've the biggest we've been is 60 right? and maybe the smallest we've been is 30, but those fluctuations are quite gradual and it's it's a combination of, you know, obviously the GFC um, yep. changed a lot of practices. Mm-hmm. As the work changes, the, the company may grow and through different periods it might slightly shrink again. I think 50 is a good number for mm-hmm. us. Right. We're not precluding growth. If we need to, we will grow, but we would like it to be a managed process because I think our culture is such a something that's so ingrained in the way that we are we want to maintain that and rapid growth often loses a lot of that culture having said that I think our priority is to find the best projects and to be involved in the best projects and wherever that takes us I guess we'll be responding to that yeah so at the moment we are Sydney based but if there was a significant enough project overseas that we would consider opening up overseas or collaborating with someone overseas. And would the same go for interstate projects? Do you do many interstate projects? We do a few, not many, and that's not because of choice. It's just the way that we've got so much work here in Sydney. Mm. We do have a few projects interstate, and, and if there were more, we wouldn't turn them down depending on what they are. And in terms of your approach to project types that you seek out you kind of you mentioned that the ambition is to just work on the best possible project so you have this range from single residential very high-end single residential let's not say. necessarily no. no and I think this is where our communications needs yeah. to improve so we for us it's about design thinking mm-hmm. and it's about how we can best add value to any project yep and that shouldn't be limited to budget we do have a reputation in high-end homes, but we're involved in DHA. So we rewrote their design guidelines, national design mm. guidelines, and they're an organisation which is about low cost and affordable housing. And for us, that was a really interesting challenge because good design there meant how do we best provide a good design outcome mm-hmm. for a low budget? And that's been quite successful and we're rolling out a few benchmark projects across Sydney at the moment to demonstrate what good design can look like in a compact home. 
we're also involved in... Sorry, when you say yeah. a compact home, do you mean... That, so is that looking also at single residential? They're all single residential like mostly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Single That's detached. detached um, okay. But on very tight sites. Yeah. And DHA have a very interesting business model, mm. which is primarily their governance is to provide housing for the defence members. Mm-hmm. But it's also very constrained to rank mm-hmm. and hierarchy. So there's there's different what they call rent bans for different homes depending on what ranking you have within the defence force. And so then that dictates the size of certain homes. Mm -hmm. So we've been really focusing on how do you design a home with great amenity on a tight lot that's compact but still gives you the same kind of spatial qualities that you're looking for in a family home. And I'm just interested as well to know in terms of your broader strategy and the types of projects you work on, when you do have a very particular approach to really assessing the demands and, you know, appropriately structuring your fees to deliver the level of outcome that you feel is required, do you still find yourself, though, needing to balance out potential losses in unforeseen kind of situations of jobs that start, you know, that blow out in terms of scope? Or is that very carefully managed? So across all of your projects, you're not trying to like balance out losses on one and profits on another and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's important as a business and as a profession that you from the outset make a very clear decision that jobs aren't bought. Mm. (laughs) I think if we start pricing projects in that way, the profession goes through quite a downward spiral and it's a race to the gutter. So for us, we would prefer to make sure that every project is running at a profit Mm -hmm. so that there is no strain on the project, there's no strain on our resourcing and the clients are getting the best outcome. Obviously, some projects through unforeseen circumstances may not work out as well as we had hoped, but we wouldn't price or allow for that from the start. So does that mean then you, there are certain types of projects you just won't go for because you know that in terms of expressions of interest or yes. um, requests for tender where you know that it's going to be a field where potentially... Yes, absolutely. Be, yeah, you just don't bother with we those don't, types of- we don't. We just don't. I think it's a waste of our time. It's a yeah. waste of everyone else's time. Mm-hmm. It's important that we recognise whether we can add value to those projects mm. and whether those projects will will even acknowledge the value that's added. Some projects are under such commercial pressure that it just it wouldn't work out for us to be involved. Yeah. So we just wouldn't. We Often wouldn't those projects through. seem to be more kind of public projects. They are. And architects seem to always want those public projects. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are and how do we dig ourselves out of <laughs> this scenario that, that we as a profession <laughs> keep perpetuating? Yeah, look, that's. I think as a profession, we all need to collectively make a change because until we do that, we keep getting these very contractually constrained kind of agreements on mm. and really low fees on these quite interesting projects. And yeah. they do launch quite a few architects. It's a hard one. I mean, I'm very interested in your, you know, the fact that you mentioned you were very engaged in this process of understanding, putting together fees for projects quite early on in your career. And I think that's something that a lot of architects don't even really think about, perhaps until they start their own practice. (laughs) (laughs) 
Mm. Well, no one at university really teaches you how to run a business, do they? No, that's right. It's it's a huge, yes. there's a <laughs> massive lack in our education, I think, around business. And it I is. mean, it may not be necessarily that unique to our profession, but maybe there's something about us that I think that we are I think particularly we're, bad at. As creatives, we martyr ourselves to the process a bit. Yes, I yeah. think that's part of the issue, isn't it? Mm. That we, you know, for us, there's this blur between work and life and yes. that balance of, yeah. you know, of it being a passion mm. as well as work and, you know. Well, we're perfectionists and often I think architects will compromise their own time and the how much they value their own time in order to achieve that perfection and they will throw themselves into these projects and go above and beyond because we're all passionate about what Mm. we're doing. To kind of go further with that question, what we do at Zahn's is that whether you're interested or not, when we put a fee together and a scope, we often involve junior staff in preparing that. And I think that's a really nice way of getting them to understand the other side Mm. to the business of architecture. And then once a project is awarded, and we get the team together, we would run them through the program, we'd run them through the scope and we'd show them what the fee structure is so that they all understand what they're working to. Yep. And then there's we've got a fee tracking process as well so mm-hmm. that at certain milestones or every fortnight when the billing goes out, we're able to review the health of the project mm-hmm. and how much fees are left and that also gives us an opportunity to reconsider, well, are we spending too much time or wasting time on something? Could we be doing it differently within the time that we've got left? And that's a really good way for the whole team, graduates and up, to really take ownership of what they're doing and how that um, contributes to the bigger picture. Yeah, that's fantastic, I think. I mean, as you said, I think involving people in that discussion and for them to understand how the fees Mm. work and how you define that fee and the rates that you use is really important, I think, especially that kind of open communication. Yeah, I think open communications is a really important principle to have in any business because I think to keep staff motivated, letting them understand the greater vision of who you are as a practice and where you're going, what your values are, you know, what? what is the greater ambition for the project that they're on? They take a sense of ownership. They engage in the process more. And when, when you're engaged and you take ownership of something, you work differently. And I think that's that's quite important to keep staff motivated. Yeah, right. To that idea of transparency, then how transparent do you feel like it is necessary? I mean, in to, to maintain an open conversation, you, you sort of need to have a certain level of transparency, but that's kind of difficult when you're talking about different salaries for different people. How do mm. you achieve that we obviously don't discuss salaries no. and that's that that needs to stay confidential mm. but the transparency that we're talking about is understanding how a project is scoped mm-hmm. hourly rates stay the same for for every project so staff can see how their hourly rates are contributing to time yep and then the tracking of that time against hourly rates is how they can see whether the, the job's making a profit or not so the transparency there is on the operational side of things. Obviously, yep. the cost side of things is is something that stays with the directors. So do you use particular technology or programs to help you then track time and, and costs across a project? This is a never-ending issue for yes. us. We have two programs at the moment. We're using ArchiOffice to manage our financials, and that's a really challenging program but with the size that we're at we haven't been able to find an alternative program that's been feasible for us so in the meantime we're using that and 
taking a lot of that data and putting it into Excel spreadsheets that we've already set up right. for staff to be able to track. And then in terms of document management, we're using Uforma, which is quite a, a good program. Where I'd like to go is to find a software that does both so that we can very easily go in and not waste time through admin and, and see the health of the project, its resourcing, how it's tracking, all of those things in the one place. We're still trying to find that. And in terms of the, that sort of business management side of things as well, is that something that the directors also manage or do you have a business or a practice manager as well? No, we all manage that for our own projects mm-hmm. and we all we review all projects every, I'd say every three months. We mm-hmm. have a three-month forecast, so yep. all of that gets fed into yet another spreadsheet that we've created to be able to track how things are going. And so there's no practice manager then? No, there's no practice manager. Right. That's yet. quite an interesting... It is. I think we're, we're so hands-on. <laughs> Only recently have we um, hired a HR manager and that was a big step forward for us and I think right. that was a really good strategic move um, yes. for the health of our staff. But we haven't yet transitioned over to a studio manager yet. Mm-hmm. That might be the next thing. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Idea entries have been flowing in over the past few weeks and now we have just five days to go before Early Bird closes on the 27th of March 2020. Get your entries in now to save. You practice more like a small practice, which is maybe one of the greatest strengths Perhaps, perhaps. And I think it might be sustainable for now. Right. I do think, and we've had lots of conversations around this, that once we reach potential, if if we reach, say, 70 to 80, that makes it very challenging to continue operating this way. So I think we would have to review, and we are, we we have some strategic workshops coming up to to look at what does growth mean for us. Mm -hmm. And that'll be an important conversation, I think. So over the course of your time that you've been at, Zans, have there been any particular points or moments in that time period that you've found particularly difficult and challenging? Like you mentioned that you were a bit sort of taken aback when you were asked <laughs> to become a director and that was at a particular time when um, you just had your second child, mm-hmm. is that right? So, And how much time did you take off around your children? The plan was to take 18 months off for both children. I... I got bored <laughs> after my first child about 12 months, so I came back a little bit early. Mm-hmm. And then for my second child, I knew that was the last child that I was going to have. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I did really want to take the 18 months off, but a really exciting project came up and at, at around the 12-month mark, and so I came back early again. To work on that project. To work on that project. Right. Yes. How did you find that um, balance with a very small child and or two children, like a toddler and a, and a baby as well at that time and trying to work on a project that you were clearly, you must have been very passionate about? It was challenging. I think there's nothing like having children to really question who you are as a person and what you're doing yeah. <laughs> and what your purpose is. I think I felt like I didn't really come out of the haze of being a mum until possibly my second child turned three. Mm-hmm. It was almost a trial and error period for those years to see what worked. 
And in the end, because of just the way that I am, I, I knew that I needed to break up and coordinate my days differently to what the conventional balance was. And I think I'm also very lucky to have my mother. Mm. She looks after the children. So I drop them off in the morning and she picks them up after school and, uh -huh. and gets them ready for me. I pick them up by about 6.30, 7 o'clock. Yep. So having her help has greatly, it, it's been really beneficial to the mm. way that I've been able to juggle yeah, the work-life balance. And I think my husband has has also, he, being a project manager, he also goes through ebbs and flows as well. So we do heavily rely on each other to coordinate yes. who's doing what and yeah. when. <laughs> yeah, we both have children of a similar age. And I think definitely I found after having children that that balance with my husband as well was, it, it becomes like a team effort. It does, <laughs> like You it need does. to yeah. help each other out when you can and you know that the other person will be there to help you out when you need to. Exactly. Kind I, of I think the out. unconscious bias is a really interesting thing to consider. I grew up in a very strong household where my mother did everything mm -hmm. and I never questioned it. So when I had children, I defaulted to doing everything mm -hmm. and I never really asked my husband whether he wanted to do anything. I just assumed that I would do all the domestic chores, have a career, be the first to take the day off if one of them's sick. And it wasn't until he went through some issues with his career where he thought, do I really want to continue as a project manager? Mm. And he took eight months off work and right. had a sabbatical, which I thought was the best thing for him and for me because yep. it made me reconsider, well, where are these conventional roles coming from? And even though I've consider myself quite progressive how did I default into such traditional assumed roles yeah so I think stopping and reframing the way that we see these roles both at home and at work will come a long way to changing this kind of gender imbalance that we have yes. in the workplace in general across all professions. Yeah, no I completely agree and as you say it's it's as much an issue with work as it is with your life at home, I think, mm. because it starts with it starts the kind of home. stigma and the uh, and the um, impressions, but also at work, how people, how men are perceived if they are, if they say, oh, they have to leave to pick mm. up the kids. Like the more that becomes normal, the more that people appreciate that that absolutely is equally as, exactly as valid and should be equally as expected. I think of any young parent, whether male or female, yeah. then the easier it kind of becomes it for does. us to and not fall into that default. Exactly, and we often catch up with people coming back from parental leave. And too often I I always ask the same question, what are your goals going forward? Yep. And quite often with our female staff, they'll say, well, I'd like to work part-time. I'll ask, well, what, what's your husband doing? Well, he's focusing on his career. Right. And I, I, I've asked. Why? Yeah, why do you I think said, well, that well, is? That's so that's, it's so strange. It? I said, well, what about strange. your career? Why yeah. can't you both work on your careers together? Mm. What if you both went to a four-day week? And quite often they're stumped by that because I think – we we default to these roles without even really questioning why. Mm. Yeah, I'm we need to change that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm hoping that generationally that will change. I don't know. Yeah, I've always found that very interesting too. That especially around sort of maternity leave or taking time off. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is a very individual thing. Obviously, too. You know, some people feel that they need to take off more time than mm. others, but I think it's equally as valid. And and I think the worst case scenario is if, is for a person to think it's assumed of them that they should mm. take the time off it's the, the thing that they should question is whether or not it suits them because as exactly. you said you got bored I, yeah. was, I totally got bored there was no way I was taking more time off than I felt was like the minimum oh. to me I spent. <laughs> <laughs> obviously finances have 
a lot yeah. to do with it. But what was interesting for me was that I earned more than my husband at the time, but right. it, it was never a question that I would take the yes, time off. So I, I do think we need to change these these kind of gender roles that mm. are ingrained in us and yep. so unconsciously as well, despite how progressive you think you are. And I think the more we talk about it, the more awareness there is around this topic mm. and the more people can start to consciously change the way that they're thinking. Yeah. So what's the um, formal parental leave policy at Zimes? We've only just introduced it, which is something we're very proud of. At the moment, it's six weeks paid parental leave for the primary carer and two weeks for the secondary carer, and that's valid for anyone who's been with us for more than 12 months. Mm-hmm. What we'd like to move to next year um, is to increase that parental leave paid period, mm-hmm. and I think it's important that we review superannuation continued to be paid through um, that leave period because I think so much of that penalty is 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 lost in that time. Right. And also I think incentivising or supporting a day of childcare would be really interesting as well. Mm. They're yeah. all things that we're looking at at the moment. Yeah, right. Great. So what do you think are the most important skills and experience required to be a good leader in an architectural practice? <laughs> I think that it's important to have a shared vision and clarity about where you want to go as a practice and what kind of practice you want to be. But it's also important that you're flexible and agile to understand that there's more than one way to get there. And then I think you need to be collaborative, have compassion and empathy to acknowledge that wherever you're going in your shared vision is that it takes a team of really dedicated people to get you there. What do you think are the best ways in the current climate to future-proof an architectural business? I think technology is playing a very big role in the way that we work and I think we or practitioners should be looking at, at ways of harnessing the advancements in technology to see how we can work more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if technology can let us can can free up our time so that we're not spending all our time working on compliances, things like fire stairs and yeah. you know, things that you don't need mm. to be too creative in, mm-hmm. so that you can free up your time to be more strategic in your design thinking. Yeah. Then that that suddenly changes the way that you know you spend your time on projects. I think the economy and the sectors are often fluctuating at at opposite ends to each other. So having a diversity in your portfolio is really important to ensure that you're resilient to a lot of these fluctuations. Mm. I think staff these days and the younger generation are very aware of mental health and job satisfaction. So mm. really practices across Australia need to improve their workplace culture and the environment yeah. in which everyone's working in because people are becoming too smart to accept the conditions as they were and have been. So you mentioned each of you as directors have a particular focus that you then rotate, and you mentioned Ben's at the moment is technology. technology. <laughs> yeah, so what's, is that is the purpose of that to kind of think broadly about? It is. Yeah. It, is. it doesn't sound as boring no. as IT systems. <laughs> it is. It's, it's looking at what technology there is out there to help us be better architects, work more efficiently, spend more time doing the things that we can add value in. And Ben's 
very tech savvy, so he's right. he's looking into some very interesting systems at the moment. How do you make sure you each allow, you know, do you allocate a particular amount of your time to look at these particular uh, look, areas? Theoretically, we should be. What we have in place is that as directors in charge of each strategic group, we have a team of associate directors and associates and also just architects that make up that portfolio of work and then we treat it like a project. Mm -hmm. So that's theoretically what should happen. Being so busy, it often can be challenging to put time into into that and I think we've just got to be better at managing that. And in terms of, so does that kind of feed back down to, as you said, like how you structure fees and the profit of the business, you take that into account that you allocate a certain amount of time yes. to these things? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have to. And that's quite important for every practice to do is that yeah. you allocate a certain amount of funds for non-billable things because actually it's an investment into yeah. improving your work your work environment. Mm-hmm. And is there a certain amount, you know, <laughs> that you kind of generally feel like it's important to invest or that's kind of just something you build into the overall kind of profit of the practice and you accept that, you know, how do you manage if people get kind of a bit over-enthusiastic, for instance, <laughs> and want to, you know, spend a lot of time on it? I guess it comes down to that sort of project, the individual project management too, does it? At the moment, we don't have that problem because we're so busy. Yeah, uh, we're not putting enough time <laughs> right <laughs> into into these strategic groups. How we set the budgets is actually aligned with each year we review the year ahead, and mm-hmm. also where do we want to be three years and five years ahead, and that happens yep. on a regular basis. And that's important that you set that kind of shared vision and, and goal alignment because that then informs everything else that you do for that year, from budgets to how you might restructure, how you, promotions, mm. all of those things. So in terms of that kind of idea of looking ahead, the three or five years ahead, what do you think will be different for you guys five years from now that maybe, you know, the practice isn't isn't currently? I mean, it sounds like it's been relatively steady, as we were saying too, between, you know, around the 50-ish mark, around mm. the five directors. So what, you know, often for people that's like thinking ahead to perhaps growth or, you know, offices expanding in terms of offices and that kind of thing, what, how do you envisage the next five years or five years from now? We're yet to have our strategic workshop. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <I'm laughs> no, 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 but it's a very good question. Yeah. We've been trying to understand what does growth look like for us. Yep. We had a pretty big period of growth in the last two years and then – some very unfortunate kind of circumstances happened with some of our very large projects and we found ourselves from going from 60 down to 50. Right. And that was a bit of a shock for us because I think we'd been so stable for so long and this mm-hmm. kind of steady growth. So we really need to understand for the future what does growth look like, what does the structure of the business look like, how do we better safeguard a more stable kind of pipeline of work so mm-hmm. that all the things that I was saying before, the diversity of projects, the range of scales and where we want to be. And I think we're really looking towards more industry collaboration and partnership, understanding research and getting involved in that a lot more and seeing where a lot of that can take us. And I think there's still this agenda to work internationally. I think there's so much happening overseas that we'd really like to be involved in. Thanks once again, Chi and Isabel. Join us next week for the final episode of Chi Mellum's Story. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review. 
Madeline Swain, Editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.